Hello and welcome to EU History Explained. In this series we try to make sense of today's European Union by looking at its history. In the previous episode we set off on a journey to look at the initial steps on the way towards a European foreign policy. From a series of unsuccessful attempts in the early years to development in the 1970s of certain informal cooperation practices, the so-called European political cooperation. We now continue by investigating how this informal cooperation will lead over the following years to today's common foreign and security policy. The second part of our journey starts in 1990, when an intergovernmental conference is convened to discuss the creation of a political union, including a common foreign policy. This conference takes place in what is once again a changing international context, marked by the fall of communist regimes in Central and Eastern Europe, Germany's reunification and the outbreak of a major crisis in Yugoslavia. This new context throws into question the very basis of the traditional two-block international order. And in doing so, it raises the need for the European community to become a more credible international actor capable of guaranteeing the European continent's security, which is now being threatened. Negotiations during the conference eventually lead to the signature in 1992 of the Maastricht Treaty establishing a European Union. This treaty builds a three-pillar structure for the new European Union, with the second pillar consisting of a common foreign and security policy, also known as CFSP, that is separate from the first pillar, the European Community. The main reason behind the pillar structure is precisely to avoid the application of supranational logic, which is typical of the community, to foreign policy. The CFSP is therefore strictly intergovernmental, marked by the European Council and Council of Ministers' dominant roles and by the use of unanimity. General guidelines are defined by the European Council, and the Council of Ministers then takes the necessary decisions for their implementation. The CFSB also remains excluded from the European Court of Justice's review, which makes it very hard to enforce member states' compliance with its provisions. Despite high expectations created by the Maastricht Treaty's rhetoric, the CFSP's limitations soon become apparent. During the war in Yugoslavia, EU action is hampered by deep divisions in the member states' positions, resulting in Germany's unilateral decision to recognize Slovenia and Croatia's independence and in the Union's inability to act over crises in Bosnia and Kosovo over the following years. The CFSP also suffers from a lack of necessary instruments and institutional framework which member states have failed to put in place. The 1997 Amsterdam Treaty tries to tackle some of these shortcomings through a number of innovations. Firstly, this treaty creates the position of High Representative for the CFSP, a senior official who will assist the Council in foreign policy matters and give EU foreign policy a face. Secondly, while the decision-making rule remains unanimity, the treaty envisages the use of qualified majority voting in the Council of Ministers in very limited cases and introduces the possibility for constructive abstention. In addition, the 2001 Nice Treaty extends enhanced cooperation to the common foreign and security policy, except for defence matters. 
so far, the question of defence has remained very much taboo in all developments towards establishment of a European foreign policy. In the intergovernmental conference leading to the Maastricht Treaty, member states are divided over this matter. France and Germany are in favour of creating a common defence. They believe that the United States is going to reduce its military commitment in Europe following the end of the Cold War and hence the EU must develop its own defence capabilities that should be centred on the Western European Union. Neutral states are reluctant and Atlantis states even oppose any move that might weaken NATO. These divergences of viewpoints prevent any conclusive provisions on this matter and thus the Maastricht Treaty ends up with a vague formulation about the eventual framing of a common defence policy which might, in time, lead to a common defence. However, at the end of the 1990s, a number of developments create the right conditions for new initiatives in this field. The Kosovo War in particular demonstrates once again the CFSP's inability to be translated into concrete actions. At the same time, some rediscovered entente springs up between the leaders of France and the United Kingdom, who were previously sitting in opposing camps. In their joint Saint-Malo declaration, Jacques Chirac and Tony Blair stressed that the European Union should have a capacity for autonomous action, backed up by credible military forces in order to respond to international crises. Despite the common document, this declaration has slightly different meanings for the two countries. For France, it means making the EU autonomous from NATO, while for Britain, it means pushing for a fairer burden sharing within NATO itself, which is something that has been long called for by the United States. Nevertheless, this declaration can be considered to be the first real initiative in the defence realm following the failure of the European defence community. The US reaction is not long in coming. While welcoming measures to enhance European capabilities, US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright warns against the famous 3Ds. Delinking European defence from NATO, duplicating existing efforts and discriminating against non-EU NATO members. Following the Samalo declaration, events move along very quickly. In June 1999, the Cologne European Council adopts the goal of creating a European security and defence policy, envisioning the Western European Union's gradual integration into the EU. In December 1999, the Helsinki European Council adopts a commitment for the ability to deploy military forces, and it also creates three new bodies within the Council – the Political and Security Committee, the Military Committee and the Military Staff. In 2003, the first European security strategy is released, outlining key security threats and strategic priorities, and the EU launches its first military operation. In parallel, between 2004 and 2007, the EU launches its biggest enlargement to date, welcoming new members, among which are 10 from Central and Eastern Europe, and thereby making enlargement de facto a powerful tool to respond to a changing geopolitical context. The next milestone is the Lisbon Treaty of 2007, which introduces a number of innovations that have a major impact on the EU's foreign security and defence policies. Firstly, the pillar structure is abolished, 
and the Union is granted legal personality which gives it the capacity to conclude international agreements. However, foreign policy remains separate from the EU's other external policies and maintains intergovernmental decision-making methods. Secondly, within the new common security and defense policy, the tool of enhanced cooperation is extended to military matters, which means, for example, that the Council can entrust the implementation of a mission to a group of member states. In addition, willing and able member states can even launch a permanent structured cooperation in the field of defense. Thirdly, the Lisbon Treaty introduces a clause of mutual defense among EU member states in case one of them suffers armed aggression on its territory, as well as a solidarity clause in the event of terrorist attacks or natural or man-made disasters. Finally, this treaty establishes the Foreign Affairs Council, which is chaired by the High Representative of the Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, as a separate council configuration from the General Affairs Council. It also creates the European External Action Service, which is to assist in the High Representative's implementation of EU foreign policy. In bringing this episode to a close, it can be concluded that a fully-fledged European foreign policy is still far from being achieved. Many contradictions and divisions endure, and European foreign policy is marked on the one hand by the Member States' firm grip on their competences and on the other hand by the incremental development of a complex set of mechanisms at EU level to ensure a closer coordination of national foreign policies. At the same time, though, the EU's external relations are much broader than just the CFSB and the CSDP. While the EU is still a foreign policy actor in the making in a more traditional sense, it is already a major global player when it comes to other external policies, such as trade and development cooperation, as well as a standard setter at global level in many regulatory fields. Thank you for watching and don't forget to like, comment and subscribe to our channel. And see you next year with more episodes of EU History Explained. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.